dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or savor a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I'm sharing a webinar I attended hosted by Susanna Gold of Veneto Communications about a little-known wine region making some incredible wines, Altrepo Pavesi. Located in the northwest region of Lombardy, just south of the River Po, the Altrepo Pavesi wine region is a well-kept secret that is worthy of your attention. Best known for the Pinot Nero grape that is perfectly suited for the hills and mountains of which it is grown on. Over 150 years ago, Count Augusto Giorgi di Vistorino believed that the climate, similar to Burgundy, would be ideal for the growing of Pinot Noir. He imported the plant and produced the first Bumanti of the Altrepo. Since then, Pinot Nero-based reds, whites, and rosé wines are still being produced, along with Barbera, Riesling, and Moscato. I hope you enjoy the webinar as much as I did, and when you are looking for your next wine, be sure to search for a bottle from Otrepo. Slancha. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Near Lum- it's in Lombardy, and it's pretty near Milan, where I lived for 10 years, and all my friends would go to Oltepo on the weekends. So it's kind of like the Hudson Valley of Milan. Right, because it's very hilly, um, and Liguria is like you know Long Island of Milan, because everyone goes to the beach in Liguria or on the other side, but mostly in Liguria, and then they go um, for like the weekend country house skiing, whatever. I mean, biking. You go to Oltrepo, okay? But it's a huge area in Lombardy. It has 60% of the vineyards in the region of Lombardy. So it's really big. It's not that well known yet. So you guys are like in at the beginning, right? And um, I am their brand ambassador for the U.S. And um, so we're in Lombardy. So I like this map, although there's a word that's misspelled here, Paglia. It's Puglia. But see where Lombardy is up in the north of Italy? Okay. So remember, we're in Lombardy. But Oltrepo is the corner of Lombardy. So see where Piedmont is and Liguria and Emilia? So that little corner is where Oltrepo is. Okay, so you're going to see in another map. And Oltrepo is this grape, this grape bunch-shaped area here. Do you see it? Um, that is the same as the area around Pavia. So Pavia is kind of the capital of Oltrepo. Pavia is a place where, if you've ever read The Red and the Black by Stendhal, it is... Uh, takes place in the Certosa di Pavia, which is this big Duomo in the city of Pavia. So Pavia is one of the provinces of Milan. Another province that you guys probably know um, is Brescia, where Francia Corta comes from, right? So you've all heard of Francia Corta. So that comes from Brescia. 
and there are lots of other wines. But this is the region where, as I said, something like 60% of the wines come from in Lombardy. So I like this map of Italy too, because it splits Italy into three. So if you're looking at continental Italy and here, I mean the top. So Northern Italy at that, I look at that as continental Italy and then the peninsula of Italy and then the islands. And so of course we're in the North and in the North, you have these diff very different soils. You have Dolomitic rock right from the Dolomite mountains. You have sand, clay, and limestone, which is mostly what you find in Oltrepo. They also have some volcanic soils in Italy and different pockets of Italy, as we know. Um, here up in Oltrepo, they have less, you know, fewer volcanic soils, but they are right near the Po River which is the biggest river in Italy. It's the longest river in Italy, which is the river that you can see in this picture running right across. So it's the biggest river in Italy. So most of the vineyards are not that far from the river. So of course that has mitigating um, impact on their wine. So Italy can also be divided kind of in three. So Alpine weather in the north, because it's all surrounded by the Alps, then kind of continental weather. So, you know, cold winters and short, short, hot summers. And that's what you have in Old Taipo. And then the Mediterranean uh, climate. But we're up in the north and we're really in kind of a continental area. So Old Taipo, it has a consortium um, that's from the 1960s. So that's pretty early because if you think about the foundation of consortium in Italy, they started in 19, uh, I think like 63 was when they came out with the first DOCs. And so these consortium were really created around the denominations. And this one was founded in the 1960s. Now, Oltrepo, oddly enough, is located on the 45th parallel, just like Bordeaux and Oregon. But so it's great for Pinot Noir, right? Just like Oregon is great for Pinot Noir. And they have around 160 producers or 1,300 growers, which means people who don't bottle their wines, right? And about 13,000 hectares of vines. So what's interesting about this region is that it's bordered on these other by these other four regions. So when I say it's bordered by Lombardy, I mean, it's the tip of Lombardy, but it's right and on the border with Piedmont, it's right on the border with Emilia-Romagna, and it's right on the border with Liguria. And some of the different wines that you guys are taste have tasted or will be tasting this week, whenever you get to taste them, are reminiscent of other wines that grow in these areas. So I think that's really interesting because the winemaking style has kind of adopted things from these neighboring areas. And the climate is impacted also by the Ligurian Sea because we're not that far away from Liguria. Like the, you know, the, the, the weather comes up from Liguria, but of course it's impacted, as I mentioned before, by the Po River and by the mountains in Piedmont. And there are basically four valleys that this, this area is separated into. But what's really fascinating, and I learned that not that long ago, is that um, Oltrepo has the third largest area for Pinot Nero, which is Pinot Noir, in Europe. Isn't that interesting? After Burgundy and Champagne, like kind of surprising. I'm sure when you think of Italy, you don't think of Pinot Noir necessarily. You might have tasted Pinot Noir from Alto Adige. There's some Pinot Noir grow that grows in Tuscany, but you know it's not that it's not that common. And so the history here, though, is really um, quite quite ancient and they've found traces of fossilized vines and this area was mentioned you know in in 60 BC by an author named Strabone and in the 1800s there were already there were 200 different kinds of grape varieties that grew in Oltrepo 
Today, it isn't like that. But so I think that's really also an interesting fact that they had so many different grape varieties growing there. And Pinot Noir is one of them. It's been growing in Lombardy, in this area of Lombardy, since the 1800s. So that's, um, to me, that means that it's, you know, practically an indigenous variety. Um, it's not, you know, it's, a, of course, it comes from France, but it's been there long enough that I like to consider that almost a native variety. I don't know what, you, you know, what anyone else's view is on that. These are the four main varieties. So Pinot Nero, of course. Croatina, which is native to this part of Italy. So you really find it here in Lombardy. You can also find Croatina in um, Emilia-Romagna, which is one of the regions that's on the border right here with, with Oltrepo. But unfortunately, in, in um, Emilia-Romagna, they call it Bonarda. But Bonarda is the name of the wine in Lombardy and Oltrepo. So that's a little confusing, but it's the same grape variety. So Croatina is Bonarda if it's grown in Emilia-Romagna. And Croatina, interestingly enough, is a grape variety that they're using more than they had in the past in Amarone. So in, um, you know, Valpolicella, which I think is interesting. I, I just learned that actually this year. Then they grow a lot of Barbera, which as we know, is a grape that comes from neighboring Piedmont. And they grow Riesling. They grow two different strains of Riesling, so clones of Riesling. So they grow actually... They're not clones. They're varieties of Riesling. So they grow what they call in Italy Riesling Renano, which is the German Riesling. And then they grow something that they call Riesling Italico, which is the Italian Riesling, which is Welsh Riesling. So I did this whole thing on Brazil because in Brazil, they grow tons of Riesling Italico, more than in any other place, except for here in Old Tripo. So I think that's kind of interesting, but it's, it's more Welsh Riesling than German Riesling. So those are some of the varieties that they grow, but they're moving away from growing Riesling Italico towards growing more Riesling Renano. And some of you did get a Riesling, which I think is great from this area. I loved some of the Rieslings that I've tried. And these are the additional grape varieties that they grow. So Uvarara, which is a grape you may or may not know. Ugetto, which is also called Vespolina, which grows in Piedmont. Pinot Bianco, which we know grows in other parts of Lombardy. Of course, it grows in Franciacorta. Pinot Grigio, which you know we, we know grows all over northern Italy. Cortese Bianco, which is a grape that grows in Piedmont. Moscato, which also grows in Piedmont. Malvasia, which is a grape that grows everywhere. And Muller Turgau, which also grows up. Yes, Diane had that reasoning. In fact, I think I sent you a Pinot Grigio, Diane, because you had tasted... No, don't come up. You had already tasted... Um, the reason. So uh, this slide was for consumers. You don't need this. You guys are all experts on this stuff. And pairing, we don't need to talk about pairing. Although I, the reason I sent you guys these wines and I wanted to do this this week was because I think Pinot Noir is so great with... Um, with turkey. It's such a nice wine to drink with turkey, as is Riesling for me. And I really like Bonarda with um, its, you know, kind of, you know, the frizzante version. One of you got a still Bonarda, which is also an interesting uh, view of Bonarda um, with turkey. So I like all that, those. And, and Sangue di Giuda is a wine that you'll probably only have once or twice in your life. It's, you know, one of the very few sweet Italian dessert wines, which, which we can talk about the oddness of the name. Anyway, so Riesling. I, I discussed all of this about the Riesling and they have, yeah, they're growing much more of it. So um, that, that also, I thought the Riesling was delicious. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit more about Pinot Noir in Old Repos. So they've had these clones since the mid 1800s. 
uh, you know, post phylloxera. And they first kind of made a sparkling wine here in Oltrepo in the 1870s, which I think is also kind of surprising. And there was, it was this man, Domenico Mazza di Codevila, who made this sparkling wine. And then sparkling wine really took off here. Except, oddly enough, it was only after the harvest in uh, 2007 that they finally got a DOCG. And they do, you know, Metodo Classico here, and they are, they have three wines that are based on Pinot Noir in Oltrepo. Some of you got the one that's called Cruazé. I think somebody got a, a Pinot Noir, a still Pinot Noir, and I don't think anybody got um, a Metodo Classico. So, all of this, you know, it's very high minimums of Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir is really what they focus on. I had decided for this tasting that we should focus on some of the other grapes as well, but they could just, I could just focus on Pinot Noir for them. And I think they'd be happy because it's really the only region in Italy that, that makes uh, classic method uh, sparkling wines from, from these uh, grapes. So Oltrepo, is an area that has been making wine for a long time, but it's been hard for them to come to market to the U.S. for a variety of reasons. There are a lot of producers there, and for many years, they kind of didn't, you know, push together, just like what had happened in Franciacorta. took, I mean, now Franciacorta always comes, and they seem very unified, but for many years, there was no unity there, and that's the same thing that was true in the past about um, Oltrepo, but it, now they've finally gotten together, which is great. And they are really focused, as I said, on this Metodo Classico DOCG and on this rosé, which they call it cruazé because it's supposed to be cru plus rosé. It's a little bit of a strange word, and they had really tried to focus on that for a couple of years. Now that's sort of taken a back seat. Now they're focusing on both. But it's a very traditional uh, wine that they make in this area. Okay, so Bonarda, you all got a Bonarda. Uh, Bonarda here is not a grape, it's a wine. So it's a blend. You may have heard of another blend from Emilia Romagna called Guturnio. Has anyone ever heard of Guturnio as a wine? Anyway, it's similar to Bonarda, the, the, the frizzante version, but Bonarda is a blend and the lion's share of the blend really comes from Croatina, which is that indigenous grape that grows here together with Barbera, Ugeta, and Uvarara. A couple of you have um, uh, a Bonarda from Luzzano, which is a really funky lady. Um, and she only does 100% Croatina because there's a movement towards just 100% Croatina. But traditionally, it's been a blend, and they're absolutely allowed to make that. And it's been a DOC wine since 1970, so that's about you know 50 years on, so a long time. Um, and it really only comes from, from this area. And the, the fourth wine that I sent all of you is called Sangue di Giuda which is a very kind of unfortunate name. Um, and in their, in, their, uh, in their press kit in English, they, they have said some strange things, but it's, it's you know, the blood of uh, Judas, right? They say it's the blood of the Jews in their press release, but I think if the person wasn't translating in, into English well, because Judah in Italian is Judas. And so it's, it's like, you know, the blood of Judas. And it's this really sweet red wine. And the thing about it is it's kind of low alcohol. So, you know, like 6% alcohol, 7% alcohol, and again, it's a blend, but this blend, the, the 
the share, lion's share of the wine is actually, this time it's Barbera. So Croatina can also be up to 65%. Um, and then the other ones kind of can be, you know, have to be uh, up to 45. So many people put more Barbera in Sangue di Giuda. And it's this very strange red wine just from this region that they make into a vivace, frizzante, and spumante styles. And they pair it with cheeses and fruits and dry dessert. I actually really love sweet wine, so I find this wine fun. But, you know, not everybody is a sweet red wine, uh, sweet red wine lover. There's another sweet red wine that grows in Lombardy called Moscato di Scanso, who some of you might know or might not know. But these are two sort of red dessert wines that come from Lombardy, which are very particular. And this one only comes from this area. And it's the kind of wine, like the way Vinsanto used to be offered to a priest who would come into your home or, you know, a guest would come to your home. So every family would kind of make Sangue di Giuda at home and then offer it to their guests when they'd come by. So those are the four kind of big, you know, wines. And then, of course, we have Pinot Grigio, which, as we know, is not a white grape variety. And some of you got the Pinot Grigio. So Pinot Grigio, we know, is a red grape variety, right? And it grows in northern Italy. And as almost all of you on this call, I think, know, because you've been in um, tastings with me, I work with a kind of Pinot Grigio specialist, Albino Armani, who talks a lot about Pinot Grigio and how it grows in, in northern Italy um, in the different areas. And so, of course, it also grows here in Oltrepo. There's a DOC where the, the Oltrepo DOC Pinot Grigio, um, and that's one of the uh, varieties that you'll see, you know, pretty numerous here. I mean, there are a lot of producers who make Pinot Grigio. So those are the, this is just more about Pinot Grigio. Those are, and then we'll talk about some of the wineries, unless anyone has questions, and I will stop for a moment. Does anyone have questions, or was I confusing about anything, or should we kind of talk about the different wineries a little bit? Interestingly enough, in Oltrepo, there are a host of wineries that are family-owned like and, and really historic. So as I was putting together this presentation and you know tasting these wines and looking up all the producers, so many of them were founded in the early 19th century, which is really rare in everywhere in Italy, not just here, but it's very rare. So practically every winery that we're talking about, except for two or three today, was founded around the turn of the century, which is, is pretty amazing. And so it's the fifth or third generation that that is running the winery today. And the other thing that's very interesting is that they all make a variety of wines. So they're not focused on Crotino or Pinot Noir only. They make all of them make a Pinot Noir, all of them make a Croatina, many of them make Sangue di Giuda. So it's kind of this tradition of making all of the local wines. In Oltrepo, in general, there are also large cooperatives. There are um, a couple of Cantine Sociale, and then there are some really, really small wineries. And then another interesting fact that I've found as I've gone through these wineries is so many of these wineries are run by women, which is also not typical. And there are about five wineries in this little group of wines that I sent you. You know, maybe there are 10 different producers here. At least five of them, if not more, are run by women, young women. And so that's really interesting to me because um, it's a big topic in my in my thinking and in my writing and just like what I like to promote are, you know, women on wineries. So Oltripo is great for that. 
Um, and it's just kind of a coincidence. There was at one point some years ago, a group of women who were promoting Autrepas Pinot Noir. And it was, I, admit, I mean, it could have been 11 years ago. I wrote about it on my blog. And I remember just being so surprised about that. So this winery, um, Ijesi, some of you have gotten the Bonarda from Ijesi de Filippi is the name of the family. They're from 1907. And they're today they're on the fifth generation. And we didn't talk that much about the soils here, but there's this kind of clay and calcareous soils, which are great for Riesling and for Pinot Noir. And as I mentioned earlier on, they're on the 45th parallel. So this is one family uh, winery. Most of the wines that you guys have gotten are imported. I think almost all of them, except for maybe two. So then this uh, Mazzolino is a very historic family, uh, winery. It's a very historic winery. Um, the estate is historic. So the family bought into the winery in 1980. The Bragiotti family is the name of the family. And Mazzolino was actually the first winery that I heard about from Oltrepo. It was... And now, a word from our sponsor. Josina Wines loves to give back. There are so many fur babies that deserve to find their forever home. We would love to be able to help as many as possible. If you are part of a nonprofit organization or know of a nonprofit organization that would like to hold a fundraiser, please contact us at contact at dracinawines.com or visit our website, dracinawines.com, to fill out the form. How does the fundraiser work? It is super simple and costs your group absolutely nothing. Together, we will choose a month that your group will be sponsored. During the month, you promote the fundraiser just like any other event you'd hold. At the end of the month, we will donate 20% of the sales to your organization. The donations will be made in the name of each individual who purchased the wine so that you know exactly who helped the animals. Our goal is to raise as much funds as we possibly can and to help as many animals as possible. So please help us help as many fur babies as we possibly can. 1997, and I was taking my first wine class in Milan, and I remember this guy in my class went on and on and on about Mazzolino, and I had no idea how to spell what he was talking about, what winery he was talking about, but he was talking about Mazzolino. So that's over, what, 25 years ago? So Mazzolino has been seriously famous for a long time among wine people. And one of the things that they have here at Mazzolino is they have 30 hectares of vines and 20 of them are like this just one big kind of clove so everything is united in terms of growing pinot noir um and that enables them to use you know low fertilizer and to you know farm in a much more kind of organic and sustainable way because they have no neighbors because they've got such a extended kind of property that has uh, no one around them so Mazzolino makes beautiful wines. Some of you got their Croise. I think somebody might have gotten their uh, still Pinot Noir. I, I think I might serve that at Thanksgiving. But so this is uh, a family that's very focused on Pinot Noir. They also make Chardonnay. But of course, they also make Caratina and Moscato, which is what I was saying that, you know, they're very focused on Pinot Noir, but, you know, they make these local grape varieties. And this is another woman. Oh, Mazzolino is run by a lady. Um, I think her name is Elisabetta. 
This is Frecciarossa. Frecciarossa is also the name of the train, the high-speed train, if you've ever been in Italy, that runs through the country. But this younger woman's name is Laura, and that's her mother. And um, again, a historic estate. Winery was founded in 1918. They have this very old villa. They also focus a lot on Pinot Noir. I think a couple of you might have gotten the Frecciarossa wines. And um, yes, it's, uh, it's called... Giorgio Dero. Some one of you got that, or two of you, and that's a great uh, long aging Pinot Noir that's dedicated to her grandfather, um, who helped found the winery. So again, another woman who runs the winery, really historic estate, family, you know, same family. So this is the woman I was talking about, Castello di Luzzano, who makes the Bonarda that a couple of you got. That's called Somoso. It's got kind of a funky red label. Um, and jo Giovanella is this woman, and she has a huge estate. So she has 110 hectares between two DOC areas. So between the Oltrepo and the Colli Piacentini. The Colli Piacentini is located near the city of Piacenza. And um, they make similar wines to Bonarda, kind of these frizzante wines, a lot of Couturno. And so she has this calcareous marl white clay soils. And as I mentioned earlier, she does 100% Crotina for her Bonarda. She's allowed to, that's her choice. And different than a lot of these other wineries, she's very creative in terms of her labels. And if you did get that wine and you want to look at her website, you'll see all of the other really funky creative labels that she has, um, which is interesting. As you can tell sort of from her jewelry, that's like not the typical uh, Italian woman from this area, in my opinion. Okay. Another incredibly historic winery is this one. And some of you got the Sangue di Giuda from them, which is called Costiolo. And others, I think, got a Pinot Noir from them. No, Reese is from them, a Riesling. So this family, and Conte Vistarino, because they're counts. So in Italy, you know, there's been all of this kind of noble families and you know, all of that nobility came from Piedmont, basically, right? The Savoy families and all of them moved to this area in Oltrepo. And Conte Vistarino is one of these people. And, you know, they have the family coat of arms and all of that. And they were the first people to bring Pinot Noir to uh, Oltrepo. So that's something that they can really count on, you know, you know, uh, talk about and the family has owned the winery since the 15th century so one of those historic family wineries and this again is a property that's run by a woman and her name is Ottavia Giorgio di Vistarino and they have 827 hectares of property of which 200 hectares of vines so really ginormous uh, you know, winemaking operation. And the wines are lovely. If you've had them and if you guys know Vince from uh Vinifera, that they are the importer of Conte Vistarino. Um, and so I didn't talk about this when we were talking about Sangue di Giuda, but it's that's sweet because they stop the fermentation, right, before all of the uh, yeasts convert the alcohol. And that's why there's a lot of sweetness. So, for example, in Costiolo, whoever has that, there's about 100 grams per, you know, per liter of uh, sugar. So very sweet wine. But I, I, I'm very partial to the wines of Conte Vistarino. Okay, another winery that uh, a couple of you got, their Sangue di Giuda, is called Lozito and Guarini. 
And on the on the bottle, it's called um, Cero Una Volta is the name of the label. And it's a family, again, 1910, the winery was started. Domenico Luzito moved up from Trani, which is in Puglia, beautiful place with a with a church on the water. If you ever get the chance to go to Puglia, you should definitely go see Trani to Seveso, which is a you know a tiny little town in northern Italy in 1910, seeking his fortune, gets married, starts a restaurant, and starts pouring wines by the glass in 1916. So a long time ago, right, right before uh, World War One. Then his son, Michele, who is in World War II, he has a, a restaurant. He sells wine from his restaurant, entrepreneurial family. Michele's daughter, Luisa, finally goes into the business and begins bottling in the 1970s. And then her sons, Renato and Davide, take the business even further and they create this label. So Cero Una Volta is the way you start a story in Italian. It's once upon a time. So they have this old-fashioned looking label because they found some labels from when their uh, grandfather, Michele, made, you know, started selling wine. And today the family has gone back to Puglia and also bought a winery, but they, they have a big winery here in Old Tripo. Again, another family, you know, really historic family, the Giorgi family. I think somebody has their Pinot Grigio. It's the Cantina Giorgi, dates from 1875. The first, you know, generation were just making wines for their neighbors, and then they they really made it into um, a winery starting in 1970. Um, and you know, it's very they're exported into 59 countries. I'm going to so La Versa. Some of you have La Versa. La Versa is a label that you've probably seen in the past. It was bought. It was actually merged rather than bought. So it's merged into this very large co-op called Terra di Olt. And the Terra di Oltrepo itself was created in 2008 from the merger of two huge um, co-ops. So Cantina Sociale Intercomunale and this other one, Cantina di Casteggio. So they merged with each other in 2008. And then in 2020, La Versa joined the group. La Versa was a winery itself that was founded in 1905. So a really historic winery in Old Repo. You've probably seen that label. You've probably had La Versa Prosecco because it's a, a huge winery, La Versa. And today, um, Riccardo Cotarella, who you may know or have heard of, he's a famed enologist. I don't know why I didn't put the O in front of enologist. He makes a line of wines for La Versa. Uh, Riccardo Cotarella is kind of like the Michel Roland of Italy. He's maybe the most famous winemaker in the country. And he makes a line of wines himself in a family. It's called Familia Cotarella that you, some of you have probably tried. But La Versa is, Terra di Oltrepo is a huge co-op. Um, it's they make about 4 million bottles and they have 700 shareholders. You may or may not know that co-ops account for about 55% of Italian wine production. It's a very, very, very important part of the Italian wine scene. People don't like to talk about co-ops so much. I used to work for a co-op, uh, Val, Valdoca, and some of you tasted some of their Prosecco with me in the past. And, it, you know, Co-ops are just another way of making wines and a really, a really important part of the Italian wine scene. So not ones to sneeze at. You may or not, may not like the wines they make, but I'm just saying, you know, don't discount them just because they're a co-op. I mean, produttori di 
Barbaresco is a co-op. There are many co-ops here and they make great wines, I think. Okay, so another family-owned winery here is, this name cracks me up, Francesco Quacquarini, which is very hard to say. And Francesco, they're the third, uh, third generation here again. But Francesco, the Quacquarini family, and some of you have their Sangue di Giuda, is organically certified, uh, you know, biodynamically certified, uh, organically certified. So in Italian, it's, you know, biologico means organic. Um, so when I write certified bio, I mean, they're organic, not biodynamic. And they do all, you know, cr cover crops and all the things that, that we want people to do. And in Oltrepo, there is a movement towards sustainability and certifications, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not as wide as, as it will be because they've made a big push for all of their producers to be sustainable. They've kind of signed on to, um, to working towards having their wineries respect the sustainable development goals, which um, I'm sure you guys know about. There are 17 goals that were laid out by the UN and there are uh, goals to be attained by 2030, such as goal number one is no poverty. Goal number two is, you know, zero hunger. Goal number three is about inequality. And um, so all of the wineries in the Oltrepo area have begun to measure themselves against um, their progress towards these sustainable development goals. Other ones of the goals are about what the use of water, energy, air, all of those kind of, you know, things. And um, it's an interesting movement in Italy to kind of measure yourself against the sustainable development goals. It's part of what a lot of companies do, you know, ESG, right? You know, environment, sustainability, and governance. So in Italy, they often use the sustainable development goals as their benchmark. And that's what's happening kind of in Oltrepo as a, a region in general. So other people got a wines from a winery that's called Manuelina. Again, a historic winery that started at the turn of, you know, the 20th century. It was started by a man named Luigi Achille. And one of you got a wine that's called Pa Luigi. And um, it was dedicated to the founder. And today it's run by uh, his grandchildren. And um, they had to kind of change the name because there are other names that are called Manuelina in the area. So that's another family-owned winery run for many generations in the, in the same way. Um, and uh, yeah, I didn't want, they, it was a little hard to find information about this winery. So I just wanted to make sure that I put some information in here for you guys. And so if you wanted more, you could find it. Another winery that one of you received wines from is called Il Molino di Rovescala, which Il Molino means a mill. And so the winery is situated in a historic mill from the 16th century. They're third generations of the Passerini family, and they are actually moving towards being um, biodynamic. So they only do natural methods, and they're very focused on Croatina. A good friend of mine from Milan, just oddly enough, was just at a um, an evening in this winery where they were doing kind of classical music in the cellar, and they make master. They make kind of an going towards making an orange wine, which I also thought was interesting. So a family that, while they're historic and they're, you know, third generation, they're looking at different kind of more modern uh, techniques and making, you know, different methods to make wine. So I thought that was interesting. And I like the name. And then 
Lisa got a wine from Cadi Frara. Um, I think it's their Riesling, and I was the only wine I could not find a tech sheet for. But this was a winery that's founded by somebody named Giovanni Bellani in 1905. Again, so you know these wineries that are all founded kind of around the turn of the century. Today, it's run by Luca, who's the great grandson. Soils and limestone and clay again that you know give this elegance to the wine. So just kind of giving you little snapshots of each of these wineries to show that they're all family run. They're all really historic. And, you know, most of them have very similar uh, soils and the grapes they grow are very similar. This one is not as similar. So you may or may not know about something that took place in Italy until the 60s, 70s, which was called the Mezzadria, which was a way of kind of sharecropping. So the very famous, you know, like, big family, like the, maybe the count of the of the town, would own all of these vineyards and he would have sharecroppers living on his on his lands. And so this particular winery, which is called called Calatroni Vini, which I believe Diane got a bottle from this winery. It says Vigo Moncarul is what it says in the winery. And I wanted to make sure that you would know that it's this winery, Calatroni Vini. So Luigi Calatroni was a sharecropper. Uh, on this on this property, and he bought the vineyard from his former landowner in the '60s when this kind of sharecropping system, which had it, it was it, they had a lot of it in the north, but mostly it took place in the center of Italy, so in Tuscany and in Le Marche, and it's a big part of Italian kind of farming agricultural traditions. Um, but today, this family, the Calatroni family, has been making wines, and you know they're the fourth generation, third, fourth generation, and they make lots of wines, and everybody is involved. But so I just wanted to point out that that's not everybody came from a very well-to-do family or was a count or whatever. But this was, a, you know, a family. He was a sharecropper and was able to buy this vineyard in the '60s when a lot of people were leaving the countryside, you know, in the 60s in Italy, things were not, you know, it was the beginning of the economic boom, but a lot of people left the countryside so that they could live in the city. And so I'm sure that's one of the reasons why it was easier to buy a vineyard. This winery um, is actually kind of the most historic of all. Uh, and the one name of the winery is um, Tavaglino. And a couple of you got these wines. I think Robin got one of these wines. And they have 400 hectares, so 80 of which are vineyards. So very big property again. They have farmhouses. They have an inn and this village. It's called Travaglino. And the winery was in a medieval monastery. The monastery is from, I think, the year 1111. But the winery itself was founded in 1868 by the Corni family, by Cavaliere blah, blah. Vincenzo Corni. So Cavaliere means like, you know, knight. And he founded this winery. And the owner today is a woman, maybe in her 30s, whose name is Cristina Ceri Corni. Um, in Italian, when you have a double last name, it means you're of a noble family. So she's the current owner with her cousin Alessandro. I interviewed her on Instagram this summer. She's like incredibly down to earth and kind and nice. They have this well-known enologist whose name is Donato Lanati, and they focus very heavily on Pinot Noir, although she did mention that they grow Croatina and some other grapes, but they're very focused on Pinot Noir. They have seven different versions of Pinot Noir. So, um, yeah, I, I like this sculpture just to show, you know, this is what her, her property looks like. So, 
that was my spiel about all of the different uh, wineries. And I just want to point out that this is a great place for a vacation. So if you go to Italy and you're in Milan, for whatever reason, take two days or four days. This is the bridge in Pavia, this covered bridge. And this is like a, you know, a, a local event that they have where they light up the bridge. But it's it's really a beautiful place to go hiking, biking, great food, nice people. And it's really super close to Milan. And it's also really close to Genova in Liguria. So if you, you know, if you go during the summer and you want to go to Liguria to the beach, you could take a little time and go to Oltrepo. It's also close to Emilia if you're in Bologna and you want to visit. And it's just a really nice area. And it's not that touristy yet. I mean, the Giro d'Italia, the bike race went through that, went through there. So if you're a biker, you would know about Oltrepo. But if you're not, you might not know about it. So it's less expensive than some of the other regions that you might uh, visit in Italy. And it's certainly one to consider. Anyway, so just anybody have a question or a comment on the wines if you tasted any of them or a thought about what you might pair them with? What are you having for Thanksgiving? I just want to talk about this dessert wine and how sweet you said it is and how sweet it doesn't seem. So it's definitely sweet. I'm not saying it it is dry at all, but it's very balanced. Incredibly balanced, right? I think it's the acidity. Yeah. Isn't it nice? when, When you talked about the, what did you say the percentage was? Like, I think it's um, 100 grams per liter. Do you have the Contevistarino Costiola? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that, it's 100 grams per liter. That's crazy because I would never. I know. It, it, I know. It's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah. Very good. It's, it, yeah, it's great. Well, they're uh, really famous and fantastic winemakers. It's That's a really, really nice. I mean, they're kind of like five or six wineries in this area that have been, you know, that are very, uh, very historic wineries. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I, I didn't get the amount of sugar on it either. Not so sweet. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, 100 grams per liter, which is not, ins- I mean, not, you know, that's not an insignificant amount of sugar, right? No. No, it's not, you know, that's, uh, no, but they're really lovely wine, I thought. I really liked it a lot. I, I'm a big dessert wine fan, but, you know, that doesn't mean I want to be, you know, chewing sugar. So I, I felt like it was very balanced. Okay. Um, That's the Bonarda that I was talking about with right. the funky label. Yeah. Yeah. It's like earthy. It almost has like a natural wine taste, but it's not. Right? It's not. It's not. Yeah. No, it's not a natural wine, but yes, it does. I, I liked it a lot. And it's, I remember, so I was, t- I was um, doing this class at Italy and Randall, who was the beverage director, was like, you know what? I think I should chill the, the Monarda. And I'm like, yes, please chill the Monarda because it's so much, I like it so much. And we he, the, we did a cooking class too. And the chef made risotto and the Bonarda was actually great with the risotto. It was like this kind of heavy risotto with taleggio and, you know, all of this kind of heavy cheese. And I thought it was great. And since you are a chef, Lisa, what would you pair that Bonarda with? Oh, let me think. What would I pair it with? Um, well, I'm having actually tonight, I'm having um, a bolognese sauce that I made yesterday. I okay. think I'm doing really well with that. I, I do too. Yeah, I do too. But you could also have it like with Thanksgiving. I think it would be perfect. I think it would be perfect with Thanksgiving too. Yeah, yeah. I think the Bonarda would be great with Thanksgiving, actually. I have tasted the Bonarda that you have. Um, I haven't tasted the Bonarda that some other people have. But in general, I just think it's a, like a nice, interesting wine. And I like wines that are a little frizzante. And that, you know, I, I also like red wines that you can chill a little bit. 
Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with that. You know, if it's, I mean, the kind of food and if it's the right, the right wine, that's why. Just because I thought they're kind of, because like the combination, I mean, the, the thing about Thanksgiving, it's so hard to just have one wine that, you know, pairs with all the sides, right. That you have and the dessert and like different people who come to your table. So I always find I have like four bottles of wine that are open. Right. So I thought I'm going to send them four bottles of wine that are fun for different parts of the meal. Right. Like Pinot Noir is great for people who, you know, love Pinot Noir, which many people do feel comfortable with Pinot Noir. Somebody who's maybe a little more adventurous. I think the Bonarda would be perfect with Turkey, a little frizzante, you might, I don't know what you guys have as desserts, but I don't really like sweet desserts. I like dry desserts. Like my favorite dessert in the world is this dessert from Mantova, which is also in Lombardy. It's called Zbrizolona. And it's like this like really dry kind of cake and sanguidiju that's perfect with that. So I was thinking of like fun, you know, like biscotti or whatever. Um, if you're not having Vincenta, which not everybody's always having. And then, you know, the Riesling, I just thought was kind of knocked it out of the park. I loved their Riesling. I thought it was really delicious and um, interesting. It was kind of like the Alsatian Riesling, you know, like a little bit um, rounder, fuller, the Rieslings that I had tasted. Um, and Pinot Grigio makes everybody happy, you know, because it's an easy, an easy sell to other ones of your guests. So I thought, you know, you can't go wrong with four different wines that somebody will bring to one of their, you know, their holiday meal. So that's why I was like, I'm going to send in these four grapes, you know, these wines, because Bonarda is a wine, not a grape, but that, you know, can work at Thanksgiving. So all of this to say, no pressure. You taste it when you taste it. But I felt the pressure to send them out before Thanksgiving. So the pressure was me, not not because you have to taste it at any particular time. In terms of the prices, I was just going on Wine Searcher to find them. Think about these wines, pairs of wines, like wines from Lombardy. Although, I mean, part of Lugana is also in the Veneto, but a lot of it is in Lombardy. So, yeah, I, I love wines from Lombardy. Of course, having lived there for 10 years and I have all these friends there, it's very familiar to me. But, you know, I think they're getting to be more familiar here. Anyway, you guys are at the cusp of learning about the, this wine region since nobody else really knows too much about Oltrepa. So this is a, a little different than, than what some of your friends have been tasting. Thank you for joining me. I wish you guys all a really happy Thanksgiving. And um, I will see you all soon. All right. Bye, Bye, everybody. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kivens. Until next week, slancha. Give me the wine, wine, wine. Give me the sweet, sweet wine.